0: By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, speaking to you from Toronto. The fight against the COVID pandemic has brought good news and bad news in recent weeks. On one hand, millions of people around the world are now being vaccinated. On the other hand, more contagious strains of the disease have broken out in Europe and Africa. And some countries, including Britain, have imposed draconian new lockdown provisions prohibiting all but the most essential public activity. But do lockdowns really work? And I realize that even asking that question will raise the eyebrows of some listeners. In some cases, the anti-lockdown lobby has been associated with activists who downplay or even dismiss the serious health threat posed by COVID. But if you look at the data, the question of whether lockdowns are worth it is worth asking. Of course, no one can reasonably question the idea that forcing people apart will help stop the spread of COVID. That's basic epidemiology. But there are still at least three main empirical questions worth asking. First, is it the lockdowns that are forcing people apart, or do lockdowns simply piggyback on disease-avoidant public behaviors that unfold spontaneously, regardless of public mandate? As we'll discuss in the podcast that follows, Public transit data, for instance, from around the world, shows that ridership on buses and subways plunged drastically in February and March at around the same time, regardless of whether lockdowns were in effect in the jurisdictions in question. Secondly, if significant groups of lawbreakers regularly flout lockdowns anyway, because of low levels of public trust in authorities, is the primary effect of the lockdown simply to punish the law-abiding majority who would be acting responsibly anyway? And third, even if we concede that lockdowns do have at least some positive effects, as most of us would concede, are those positive medical benefits exceeded, in cost-benefit terms, by the economic and mental health costs associated with solitary life, which can also exact a death toll in and of themselves? Speaking with me about all of these issues is Philip Lemoine, a prolific Paris-based Cornell University scholar, who spent the last nine months writing detailed analyses and critiques of the world's COVID response. This includes a series of authoritative essays that appeared at Quillette examining China's role in the early weeks of the pandemic outbreak. Lemoine's background is in computer science and statistical modeling, but full disclosure, he is, like me, not a doctor or an epidemiologist. So the discussion you are about to hear is one between two mathematically minded journalistic analysts not accredited health professionals. As our launching point, we're going to be looking at a particularly influential paper published in the journal Nature in June, authored by a team led by Imperial College London mathematician Seth Flaxman. That paper, titled Estimating the Effects of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions on COVID-19 in Europe, has been cited more than 500 times in the scientific literature, in large part due to Flaxman's stated finding that about three million lives were saved by lockdown in 11 European countries during the early months of the pandemic. It's an article and a claim that Lemoine has focused on closely in his own writing and which will anchor our discussion because it centers a critical assumption about lockdown operations that's open to question. I spoke to Mr. Lemoine on Tuesday by Skype here are excerpts from our conversation. We're talking here about your critiques of the pro-lockdown literature, but correct me if I'm wrong, back in the early part of 2020, you were a supporter of lockdowns, is that correct?
2: Yes, that's, that's correct.
1: And even now, your opposition, or at least skepticism of lockdowns, it seems to be based on statistics and empirical comparisons of cost and benefits, right? You don't have an ideological aversion to lockdowns, as far as I can tell.
2: Yeah, yeah. no. I mean, And I, I'm not even denying that lockdowns affect transmission, to be clear. right? I'm not saying they have no effect. I'm saying, one, the effect isn't as large as maybe I used to think, and I think many people still think. And two, I think the evidence supports the view that we can control the pandemic without resorting to something as strong as certainly the kind of lockdown that we had in Europe in the spring.
1: And the critique you've written of the pro-lockdown movement in the academic literature, it focuses very specifically on what you identify as an extremely influential paper published in June in Nature under the title, Estimating the Effects of Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions on COVID-19 in Europe. And by non-pharmaceutical interventions, they mean lockdowns and other public health mandates prescribed by government the lead author was a researcher named Seth Flaxman. I think you mentioned that this has been cited, I think, more than 500 times. So it's an extremely influential article in the field. It also offered the somewhat shocking statistic that according to the author's models, they claim that something like 3 million lives were saved in 11 listed European countries in total in the months after the pandemic first hit Europe. That's quite a large number.
2: Yeah, it's called non-pharmaceutical because it doesn't involve vaccinating people. It's not about a new treatment. So the, the paper is looking at the effect of uh, restrictions and it's trying to determine what each of those interventions, uh, what the effect each of those interventions had and what the overall effect of those interventions had and what it finds. What they find is that, one, those interventions taken together saved more than 3 million lives in Europe alone during the first wave. So actually, it's only up to May, the beginning of May. So they claim that had it not been for those interventions, that's what their model finds, by the beginning of May, there would have been more than 3 million extra deaths in those 11 European countries they looked at. That's the first thing, the first conclusion they draw from their work. The second conclusion they find is that it's also that of these interventions, the only one that they find had a meaningful impact on transmission is complete lockdown. So basically, if you look at the results of their model, it looks as though closing schools, banning public events didn't really have any statistically detectable effect on transmission, but lockdown had a massive effect and was was the thing that allowed the, the, the countries to get the epidemic under control.
1: And by lockdown, they're referring to policies that are essentially blanket prohibitions on people leaving their homes, except for completely essential reasons, right? Yes.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, I guess one problem is that they, they try to assess the effect of policies that actually vary a lot. They were very different in different countries, you know. So they call lockdown, in, in their model, anything, they, the, whatever Denmark did is the same, is labeled a lockdown, and it's supposed to be the same as what France did. But actually, if you look at the detail, what we call the lockdown in Denmark was completely different from what and was actually much more relaxed than what people did in France, you know, what the government did in France. So like in in France, you literally needed to fill some paperwork to go out. You couldn't meet with anyone outside of your family or your household. But in Denmark, I think that there was a limitation of 10 people in public or something like this. I mean, it was you didn't have any of that paperwork to go out. My point is just that those things were very different, but in the model, they're all supposed to be the same.
1: Although I I also noticed in your critique that you agreed with some of their decisions as modelers, for instance, their decision to infer caseload from deaths, because the death data is generally more accurate than the infection data. And you also were able to access their source code for their mathematical modeling, which was in the R programming language, and you were able to download that and run it and tinker around with it to test some of their premises on your own computer, as I understand.
2: Yes, so I mean, I have been very critical of the papers and even the authors, but one good thing they did is they did provide the code. You can find it on a website called GitHub, and so anyone can run the code themselves on their computer and reanalyze the results, et So that's what that's what I did.
1: Your central critique of this model, and it sounds like it extends to other models that have been done in this area, has to do with the particular way that government interventions, such as lockdowns, are modeled. This is a little bit technical, but I think it's important to understand what you're arguing. Could you explain that element of your critique?
2: Yeah, I guess the first thing that I think it's important people understand, and this particular criticism applies to this paper, of course, but it actually applies to most papers that purport to assess the effect of lockdowns and similar government interventions. And the the problem is that basically what they're doing is that they have a model, an epidemiological model of how the epidemic is unfolding. They infer the infections from the deaths, which you're right, I think is a good idea because the data on cases, especially back in the spring, were really bad. Whereas data on death, while still imperfect, they're much better quality. And so it's a good idea to infer uh, infection from this. So they have a model that basically tries to figure out how the epidemic unfolded. The model literally assumes that the only thing that affects transmission and therefore that affects how the epidemic is unfolding is government interventions. Like there is no room for other factors like people's spontaneous changes of behavior to affect transmission and therefore how the epidemic is going. So the conclusion that government interventions had a huge effect on the on the epidemic, it's baked into the cake already. You know, it's baked into the assumptions of the model. Because the model is literally premised on the idea that those interventions are the only thing that can affect transmission and therefore the how the epidemic is unfolding.
1: And now, a brief shout-out for another podcast, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which you can find at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You've heard me talk about Jordan's podcast before, and you know that Apple named it one of its best podcasts in 2018. But if you haven't given it a listen, let me just tick off some of the guests this guy has managed to get. Bob Saget, Malcolm Gladwell, Dennis Rodman... Mark Cuban, and the late Kobe Bryant. And if you tune in regularly, you'll know that this isn't just a parade of famous people. Jordan also finds folks you've never heard of who just happen to have fascinating stories. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R. And now, back to our Quillette podcast. So when I read this part of your critique, what sprung to mind was data that I looked at in spring, when I was doing some of my own research, which showed transit usage data for large cities around the world in February and March. And this data was made available because some of the companies that take fair payment for these large cities, they have these enormous troves of metadata, and they put online the ridership numbers in many large cities. And what was really interesting is that in February and March, you saw these huge drops in the number of riders in major cities around the world, regardless of whether those jurisdictions were subject to lockdown. So this premise that it has to be a government intervention that causes people to alter their behavior, to me that's fundamentally suspect. It actually could be a correlative effect or it's not clear which causes the other because sometimes when people are fearful, they separate from each other and then they agitate maybe through the media political pressure to get a lockdown in place. So the presence of the lockdown may actually be associated with public attitudes after the public has started acting autonomously without government interventions to avoid getting the disease.
2: Yes, exactly. Imagine, I'm not even arguing that this is the case yet. I guess we'll get to that later. But imagine that in fact, people spontaneously change their behavior because they're afraid you know like you said they see in the news that there's this new deadly virus that's going around and they don't want to catch it they don't want to infect their uh, family and friends etc so they just more or less spontaneously change their behavior so transmission of the virus goes down and and so does the epidemic now suppose that's at the same time you know because by the time people realize there's a deadly virus around you know it's not just in china it has several effects. One effect is that it's going to make people change their behavior before any government intervention to stay at home, that sort of things. But it's also going to cause those government interventions, right? So suppose that, in fact, what did most of the work or what would have done most of the work is people spontaneously changing their behavior because they're afraid, but that at the same time, governments did those interventions because they wanted to prevent the spread of the virus. If you use a model that assumes that the only thing that affect the transmission and the epidemic are the government interventions, your model is going to infer that the government interventions did all the work.
1: You know, to take a thought experiment, even if the lockdowns in Canada ended tomorrow... I probably wouldn't alter my behavior that much because I know the disease is still out there. I know that my friends and my family and my neighbors expect me to act in a certain way. So it's not really the lockdown that's changing the way I behave. I'm not convinced that lockdowns are either a necessary or even a sufficient way to stop the spread of the disease because most people are obeying the rules and probably would obey the rules even if the rules weren't enforced or weren't even there because it's just the safe thing to do. And then you have a small minority of the population that's just having parties and ignoring the rules altogether. What happens is that small group of people is spreading the disease and the rest of us react by saying, oh, I guess we need a stricter lockdown. We've been observing anyway, and the people who are spreading the disease won't. A lot of this just depends on social trust, how much social trust exists in society to make sure everybody does what's safe for everybody else. And I'm not
2: sure that's something you can legislate through lockdown measures my basic view of what's happening is that the, the virus is spreading. So infections build up. Eventually, people start dying. So it makes the headlines, people get scared, they adjust their behavior. And you know, eventually, the what is called the reproduction number, which is the average number of people that anyone who has been infected goes on to infect, goes below one. And when it goes below one, the epidemic starts receding. Now, what happens is that As those deaths are increasing, it's not just that people get scared and so they adjust their behavior, but it's also that there is a tremendous amount of pressure that's put on governments to mandate various restrictions. Certainly, I think that many of them don't do nearly as much as people assume, you know, and I I suspect that some of them have very little effect on transmission, although they don't necessarily have a very little effect on the economy. They don't necessarily have very little effect on on people's well-being, etc., for instance, in France, we were prevented, legally prevented from leaving from more than one kilometer outside our home, even to have a walk or something. I very much doubt that this had any or more than a tiny effect on transmission, but I'm sure it had a huge effect on many people's well-being. But when death increased, there is a, a tremendous amount of pressure on governments, mostly through the media, to do those interventions.
1: On a political and cultural level, I find this discussion interesting because the view that people will only change their behavior based on government interventions, on lockdowns in particular, is something that's now, as we're talking about it, it's associated with the pro-lockdown crowd. What's interesting is that much earlier in the pandemic, this same view, which I think both of us, both of us agree that this premise is, is false— but this false premise that it requires a lockdown to alter behavior, this was embedded in a key document coming out of Imperial College in London in the early months of the pandemic that was widely cited by lockdown skeptics, people who were on the other side of the debate. And their logic was as follows, that that report showed a sort of sawtooth function whereby lockdowns would be imposed. Everybody would immediately respond by limiting their social contact and the caseload would go down. But then according to this Imperial College report, according to their premises, the very moment that the lockdown was removed everyone would rebound immediately to their previous behavior they would obey no inhibitions on their social contact the disease rate would spike everyone would get sick again hospitals would be overwhelmed and they'd have to go back into lockdown and the idea was and there were plenty of graphs in this imperial college report to to back it up that we'd just be in this cycle for years and this was cited by lockdown skeptics as saying hey look Who wants to do this? Let's just go for herd immunity. Now, the herd immunity argument, to my mind, has been discredited. And at the same time, the premise behind this sawtooth function of human activity, responding instantly and exclusively to government interventions, to my mind, that's also just completely false. But it's interesting to see that that logic has been deployed on both sides of the lockdown argument.
2: You're exactly right. Early on, people like me, you know, I I was in favor of lockdown, but mostly because I thought we were totally unprepared and I thought we needed to gain some time and also to learn to collect data and learn more about the virus because there was a lot of unknowns at the time. I actually think that many of the things we had doubts about, like the infection fatality rates, turned out to be pretty much what we thought at the time. But one thing that we definitely, I think, didn't realize is how much people would change their behavior spontaneously and how much it could affect the transmission. But you're right. You know, the point you were making, I think, is very good is that when this report came out, I, I also did a piece on this model at the time looking at exactly how it worked. And there was no particular reason to think it, it was going to be reliable.
1: One of the results of this discussion is that it's making me think about why people do or do not obey public health advice. And I know that in my case, as I've said, it's mostly about social forces and expectations and how people in my life would judge me, as well as my own fear about getting sick. But a lot of this, as I said before, comes down to social trust. Can you model something as intangible
2: as social trust in mathematical models? You can model social trust. You you can do this, but in order to do this, you're going to have to make a lot of pretty arbitrary assumptions about how exactly it affects the epidemic. And you can do this. Some people have done this. You know, there are models where the contact rate changes during the epidemic different ways, and this affects transmission and the number of deaths, et cetera. You can do this, but you're going to have to make a lot of assumptions that basically you're pulling out of your ass. <laughs> uh,
1: and also, you have to deal with the fact that the most accurate data about social interactions is going to come from apps that follow you around in real time on your phone. Governments around the world, including here in Canada, have encouraged people to use those apps for contact tracing. But you get a significant amount of statistical bias because who are the people who are going to install and use those apps? It's people like me who are following the rules.
2: One of the huge problems, in my opinion, of the scientific work that's been done during the pandemic is that there hasn't been enough acknowledgement of something that philosophers of science and and statisticians call model uncertainty and that's the uncertainty not resulting from your having like say imperfect measurement of the data like we do on death and even more on cases but it's a certainty due to the fact that you don't know what model is right so like most of the works that's that gets published on this stuff people use just one model and then they report the result from this one model But the truth is that if you used a different model, a different but equally reasonable model, you would get widely different results.
1: One of the things that's made me skeptical of the idea that there is a coherent evidence-based approach to lockdowns and other public health measures is just the anecdotal stuff I observe in day-to-day life. There are retailers in my neighborhood that you have to go through this whole rigmarole of sanitizing and washing your hands when you go in. Meanwhile, people in the store are actually like talking face to face, which is how the disease actually transmits. There's very little evidence that there's widespread COVID-19 propagation through fomites or surfaces or hands. It's, this, it's an airborne disease. And yet, you know, we're nine months into this thing or 10 months into this thing, and people are still telling me to wash my hands. Why haven't we adjusted our approach?
2: The problem is related to what I was saying about lockdowns earlier, that I think there is a lot of inertia. In the media and in the public, what works, what doesn't work to deal with the pandemic. And I think that, you know, people have been told, like, we've hammered people with, like, wash your hands back in March. And so they're going to wash their hands and worry much less about things that probably matter a lot more, like ventilating your places where you have a lot of people coming, etc. And similarly, you know, we thought, you know, that lockdowns was the only way we could deal with this. And now people still assume that this is true. We should
1: concede that there have been some important government-directed public health interventions in regard to COVID, and I'm thinking in particular of masks, which most people now would agree have saved a huge number of lives.
2: It was driving me nuts, you know, back in March to see experts explain that, you know, masks were, were not useful. But I think we don't have a very good idea of what the actual effect of masks is. I think we have very strong theoretical reasons and indirect empirical evidence to think that masks work and do help to reduce transmission. And that's why I was in favor of them in March. And that's why I'm still in favor of them. And moreover, wearing a mask is a very low cost intervention, So it just makes perfect sense.
1: But even putting aside the medical effect of wearing a mask, one thing I like about it is it has a social signifier. It sends the message to everybody that, hey, I'm taking this seriously. I take your health seriously. We're all on the
2: same team here. We're all in it together. That has value too signaling that we're all in this together i mean i'm not saying that this doesn't matter at all but i certainly wouldn't want to ruin small businesses just to signal that we're all in this together but i think the second thing which i think is plausibly that has a significant effect is that wearing a mask also sends a signal that this is some scary thing well, it is a scary thing
1: <laughs> it's a very scary thing
2: it's a deadly disease. I agree with that. But if, if lots of people wear a mask, it sends a signal. It's going to make people scared. And if they're scared, they're going to uh, change their behavior. If they change their behavior, the contact rate is going to go down and it's going to help control the epidemic. So I think you're right. That something like mask, even if, if it had no effect, no direct effect on transmission, which, again, I don't believe, although I think we have no idea exactly what the effect is, even if it had no direct effect, it would still plausibly have this effect more indirectly. It signals to, to everyone that this is a scary thing. And so it probably encourages the kind of behavioral changes that help reduce transmission. So I, I agree with that. And I agree that government's communication on this, you know, when they finally changed their minds, I mean, they took their sweet time about it. When they finally changed their minds, I agree that communication of the government on, on this probably helps. And In general, again, I'm not saying that interventions don't matter. I'm sure they do. I'm sure they do help to reduce transmission. But I think we have to have a realistic assessment of how much how big an effect they have. Again, I was in favor of lockdowns back in back in the spring, but I think the reason why I changed my mind is that after the first wave, and the evidence suggested to me very strongly, and I think this has only been become more true since then because we've had more data of the second wave, that even if there is no government mandated lockdown, eventually, presumably because people spontaneously change their behavior, the epidemic goes down. Maybe it takes longer, probably it takes a bit longer to go down, and that means that more people die, but you also avoid a lot of the negative consequences of some of those restrictions, like for instance in France during the second lockdown, the government administratively closed small businesses except for a few things like stuff that sells food, etc. And really I don't think that the evidence is very good that this had a very large effect on transmission
1: and now a commercial message for those of you looking to add Bitcoin to your investment portfolio or retirement account and I realize that this is a confusing subject I remember the first time I got Bitcoin I walked into a convenience store that had the Bitcoin logo went up to a kind of reverse ATM fed in some bills and received in return a long series of numbers and letters Then I spent an hour trying to figure out how to feed those numbers and letters into a Bitcoin wallet on my phone. I wanted to invest in cryptocurrencies, but surely there had to be a better way. And that's what brings me to BitTrust IRA, a seamless, secure, and easy way to add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. BitTrust IRA stores your private keys with military-grade encryption. They have a 24-7 trading platform with no minimum investment and unlimited trades. They also offer what I'm told are the lowest trading fees in the industry. Many crypto assets have been great performers this year and some analysts will tell you they're a great way to start building intergenerational wealth. For those looking to invest, skip the convenience store and go to bittrustira.com slash Quillette to learn more. For a limited time, BitTrust IRA is waiving the signup fee for Quillette podcast listeners, a $50 value go to Ira.com slash quillette, B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash t e, And now, back to our podcast. You have a really interesting section of your critique that centers on how Professor Flaxman and his co-authors treated the awkward subject of Sweden, because of course, famously or infamously, Sweden did not have a lockdown. Sweden did have some public health measures and interventions, such as banning certain types of large public gatherings and so forth. But this was awkward for the authors of this lockdown paper, because their conclusion was that only true full lockdowns work, Sweden did not have a full lockdown. And one thing that caught my eye, and to me is a real is a real red flag in regard to the Flaxman paper, is that in order to deal with this kind of anomaly, They have a set of fudge factors that capture the statistically anomalous effect of these different countries. And in the case of Sweden, you've got this gigantic fudge factor, which I mean, to some extent, it makes nonsense of the whole model, although that wasn't apparent until you actually ran your own numbers and examine certain things that were not reported in the original Nature paper.
2: I think you're getting it right. So basically, remember what I said before. They assume that any intervention, a lockdown in Denmark, whatever effect it has, it's going to be exactly the same effect as a lockdown in France or a lockdown in the UK. Same thing for school closures, same thing for banning public events, etc. And then what they find is that only lockdown has a significant effect on transmission. The other intervention, they basically don't affect transmission. At least that's what the model finds. And yet, as you said, when you look at the results of their model for Sweden, they find that transmission went down basically in a very similar way it went down in the other countries. But Sweden didn't have a lockdown. Of course, the model found that because if you look at the death curve in Sweden, you see that it goes down too pretty quickly. You know, it peaks by mid-April and then it goes down. But this is weird. Their conclusion is that only lockdown had a significant effect on transmission. So how is it possible that in Sweden, where there was no lockdown the model still finds that transmission was reduced by about the same amount as in the other countries. And what happens is that, as you say, you know, what they did is that they included some, something they call a country-specific effect, which is supposed to model the fact that even the same interventions, there's going to be some idiosyncratic factors in different countries that are going to make this, even the same interventions be somewhat not equally effective. So, you know, whatever, perhaps uh, if it's a lockdown, you know, perhaps for in some country, you know, in Germany, they respect the rules more than in France. So you may think that, you know, the lockdown is going to be more a bit more effective in Germany than in France, because more people are going to stick by the rules, that sort of things. You know, And when you look at the results, something they didn't say in the paper, but that I found by uh, running the results, the the model myself on my computer, is that. This country-specific effect, which is supposed to model you know, how those small and factors affect the effectiveness of, of the same intervention in different countries, in Sweden, it's absolutely huge. In fact, according to their prior, they use a prior to run their model, according to their prior, there was about one chance in 4,000 to find an effect as large in Sweden. So as I say in the piece, unless you think there are some magical fairies in Sweden that made their last intervention, which was banning public events, what their model finds effectively, once you include that country-specific effect, is that banning public events, which only reduced, according to their model, in every country only reduced transmission by about 1.6%. In Sweden, because of, of this country-specific effect, had an effect that was 45 times as large. Now, of course, this never happened. You know, nobody can seriously believe that for some mysterious reasons banning public events in Sweden was 45 times more effective than in the rest of Europe. This didn't happen. What it means is just that it's a purely statistical artifact. This country specific effect that they included in their model, it absorbs all of the effect of the reduction of transmission that was achieved in Sweden, probably by other interventions, but also probably a lot by people spontaneously changing their behavior because they're scared, which is what you were saying at the beginning. You know, they don't take public transit as much anymore because they don't want to catch the virus, et cetera, et cetera. So their conclusion is totally worthless. What sense does it make to say that, that the model found that only lockdown had significant effect on transmission when you find that the only way the model could reach this conclusion is by assuming something absurd like this, namely that because of mysterious reasons, banning public event was 45 times more effective in Sweden than everywhere else in Europe. They didn't say that in the paper. You had to run the model yourself and reanalyze the results yourself to figure that out, and I think that's a huge problem. It means that the conclusion is extremely misleading.
1: And just to repeat, the Flaxman paper concluded that Something like 3 million deaths were avoided in these 11 European countries in the initial months of the pandemic. They attributed the savings of these lives to lockdowns. You show how, if you apply a more logical approach and use their framework, but back calculate using the Sweden example uh, without the fudge factor, that instead of 3 million, you could just as easily get a figure of 200,000 which of course is much lower. Although you're careful to say that that number itself isn't necessarily accurate. Uh, but you, you introduced that figure just to show, I guess, how exaggerated and perhaps arbitrary that original 3 million figure is.
2: Let's just explain how they actually reached that 3 million lives saved number. So if you want to know how many lives were saved by government interventions, you have to run a counterfactual. You have to simulate a world in which there was no intervention. And so the epidemic ran its course without intervention. Then you look in this simulation at how many deaths you get when you you simulate an epidemic where there were no government intervention. And then you compare this number of deaths to the actual number of deaths, or more precisely the one that was modeled, but doesn't matter because it's very close. And so that's what they did. They assumed a model to simulate the epidemic in the absence of intervention, remember that in their model, they assume that only interventions, so when they simulate a world in which there were no tr- intervention, no government interventions, implicitly they assume that people's behavior doesn't change at all compared to before they knew there was even a daily virus wrong. So of course, when you do this, what happens is that very quickly, more than 90% of the population has been infected. And so you get millions of deaths. So of course, when you compare this to the actual number of deaths, what you find is that the interventions have saved millions of deaths. But that's nonsense. You know, of course, that's not the right way to think about the counterfactual situation. I don't think anybody is saying there should be no government interventions. I'm certainly not saying that. What I explain in the piece is that, well, look, since nobody is really arguing that there should be no interventions, the really relevant counterfactual you want to look at is, what if we hadn't done a lockdown, but we had done all the rest? So what I propose is that, look, in order to simulate the counterfactual, Instead of assuming that there would have been no change in behavior and no other intervention, the counterfactual we want to run here is what would have happened if there had been no lockdown, but the other government intervention, plus those spontaneous behavioral changes. And I'm saying, let's take their own results about Sweden, thanks to their intervention that they did, which did not include the lockdown, and probably even though this is not modeled, spontaneous behavioral change. And let's assume, to simulate the counterfactual, that transmission had been reduced by as much in every other European country. And then what I do is that I simulate a counterfactual epidemic in which everywhere in Europe, transmission was reduced exactly as much as it was reduced according to Flaxman et al.'s model in Sweden. And let's look at how many deaths there would have been. And when I do that and I compare that to the actual number of deaths, what I find is that instead of saving more than 3 million lives, Lockdowns have only saved about 200,000 lives. Now, as you say, I just want to repeat this because this is important. I'm not saying that lockdowns actually saved 200,000 lives in in Europe during the first wave. I don't think that we have any good reasons to take very seriously this particular estimate. What I'm saying is that it's based on Flaxman and Al's own results, and I think it's actually a much more sensible counterfactual.
1: And now a message from Blinkist, the app that distills the essence from over 4,000 best-selling non-fiction books and brings them to you in 15-minute text and audio explainers. As part of my job at Quillette, I need to be conversant about what books my readers and listeners are talking about, in part because a lot of the authors of those books end up on this podcast, but life is busy. Blinkist lets me dive into a topic quickly and find out how to deploy my reading time best. Blinkist also has teamed up with popular podcast creators to blink those podcasts for you too. And yes, the company uses the word blink as a verb like that. It's a thing. By blinking a podcast using a feature called Shortcasts, you can get to the heart of an episode quickly, complete with high quality audio. You can jump right in on the go during your commute, at the gym, around the house, or even download to listen offline. 15 million people are already using Blinkist to broaden their knowledge in 27 nonfiction categories, including self-improvement, personal growth, management, leadership, and mindfulness. And like I've told you before, the length of a typical Blinkist abridgment is just 15 minutes, about the length of time it takes me to walk my dog. Some of my recent favorites include The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator by Timothy C. Weingard, Becoming by Michelle Obama, and The AI Economy by Roger Boodle. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free 7-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist Premium Membership. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to get 25% off and a 7-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Quillette. And now, back to our podcast. Before I let you go, I want to ask you for a a little bit of a retrospective on this epic series of articles you wrote about COVID's origins in China. These articles, I think it was 30,000 words in total or something like that, appeared on our Quillette website, uh, I believe it was around August. And what I liked about it, to me, it's it's a mark of honesty that (laughs) your articles didn't please anyone. Because people who distrust China and maybe even some conspiracy theorists, uh, they didn't like the fact that you did not give lip service to a lot of these conspiracy theories. On the other hand, you didn't let China off the hook and you talked about some of the lies that Chinese officials told. I thought it was a very even-handed approach, very exhaustive. When you revisit those articles, do you think you got things right?
2: you remember, you know, a few months ago, there was a lot of people, I mean, I said a lot of people, virtually everyone was saying that even though the Chinese government is claiming that the epidemic is no under control, this is a lie. You know, they're hiding the the true numbers and actually a lot of people are still getting infected and dying, etc. So that was one thing people said. Another thing people said is that they knew about the outbreak much earlier than they admitted, but they hid it. It's not always clear why, you know, they did that, but uh, they didn't want to admit it or whatever. And then they lied about it for several weeks until they were forced to admit it. And because of this, you know, it delayed the response in, in other countries. And this is why, you know, the, the pandemic couldn't be prevented, et cetera. One of the specific claims they make is that they knew human-to-human transmission was easy long before they admitted it. And so what I was arguing in that piece, I, I looked at the evidence. And so you can see that not that the Chinese government was perfectly honest or anything, and it's not that it was totally competent either. They did lie about some things. Uh, they did know about human-to-human transmission a bit earlier than they admitted. They withheld information about this for a while, but it wasn't nearly as long as people assumed. Basically, there was a week in January where confidential documents Chinese officials show that they were pretty convinced at this point that human-to-human transmission, human sustained human-to-human transmission, was possible and fairly easy, and they waited a week to say it. But people were making much more, much stronger claims. They were claiming that they knew already, sometimes they, claim, they said in November, based on sometimes fabricated quote, actually, as I show in the paper. So they were making all sorts of really strong claims about how the Chinese government basically had done these huge manipulations and hidden the true extent, hidden the outbreak for the, at first, and then hidden the true extent of the outbreak. And basically, it was all their fault that there was a pandemic in the first place, and that the other countries you know, were able to prepare sufficiently. Recently, there was a report by CNN that was hyped as confirmation that the Chinese government had massively faked the data. But actually, when you read the reports, it doesn't. It confirms everything I was saying in my article on Coulette. I also argued against the view that the virus had been artificially created in a lab in Wuhan. And I know many people still believe this is true. I I still don't believe it's true. Maybe I will find that there is more evidence that will make me change my mind. But so far, I haven't seen anything that made me change my mind about this. Philippe
1: Lemoyne, thank you for joining the Quillette podcast.
2: Thanks a lot for having me. It was great.
0: If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.